Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hello, it's Dr. Han, ER doc. I'm hiding away from the beach this time. Hello, this is Praz, the Sandman, filtering your aerosols through your airways over the radio waves. To Jean Biu, the um, emerging infection and neurology expert. I'm excited to have you all together again. And we're even joined this week. We're even joined this week by another friend of the show. We're bringing back our space pharmacist and all-around extraordinary guest, Eleanor O'Rangers. So, hello. Welcome Eleanor. back. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank Hi, you. Mm-hmm. Hello. So, usually, gang, it's an off week, and you know what that means. It's time for another Journal Club. Yay! <laughs> but we're also all still in quarantine on lockdown, so I'm going to devote this Journal Club to another pandemic COVID update. So, just right off the top, I am positive that by the time I release this episode, things we say on it will be out of date. Bear with us. We're going to do our best to update you with the things we know, things we can share. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we remain an educational show. Please ask your primary care doctor if you have any legit medical questions. Let's get started. As always, I'm going to bring you guys a little bit of history. We've all heard multiple encouragements from everyone to wash your hands. There's been TikTok dances. There have been clever parodies. There have been announcements from the government, from Eleanor's hero, Dr. Fauci. (laughs) My hero too. Yay, everyone's hero. Yay. From everyone's hero. But did, have you guys ever heard of Dr. Ignaz Semmelweis? Who not? Uh, Do tell, do tell Josh. So although we are all hero-worshipping rightly Dr. Fauci for his calm fact-laden briefings, the very first doctor who ever really widely promoted hand-washing was in 1850, Ignaz Semmelweis, who gave a lecture at Vienna General Hospital saying just a simple washing of hands in between doing autopsies on dead patients and then delivering babies in the maternity wards would vastly decrease mortality. Typically, medical students at the elite teaching hospitals of the day would start by doing autopsies on women who had died the day before of what was called childbed fever. Uh, Then they went straight from those autopsies to the laboring women. And Dr. Semmelweis said, hell no. He ordered his students and junior physicians to wash their hands in a chlorinated lime solution until the smell of the dead in the autopsy suite was no longer detectable. 
<laughs> to be clear, they weren't wearing gloves either. Just sounds delightful. I, I, I have uh, to say that right now. Yeah. <laughs> Wash your hands until the smell of death is no longer on them. Soon after instituting this protocol in 1847 is when he started doing this. He gave the lecture three years later. And mortality rates on the doctor-dominated OB service plummeted. And you would think this would make him a hero. Unfortunately, Semmelweis's ideas were not accepted by all of his colleagues, and a bunch of them were actually outraged and offended at the suggestion that they were the cause of the patient's poor outcomes and deaths. So he got a ton of resistance and criticism, and he had kind of a nervous breakdown leading to eccentricity and commitment to a mental asylum where he died. And he died either, depending on which account you read, of infections secondary to multiple beatings at the asylum, of a nervous breakdown, of a stroke, or of pneumonia. But the point is, the guy told everyone, wash your hands, and he was declared insane and died in an asylum for it. I know you're thinking around the 1850s, well, wait, when about, what about Louis Pasteur? Well, Pasteur's germ theory of disease didn't happen until 1865. And then in 1867, we had Scottish surgeon Joseph Lister, who really brought up antiseptic surgery, and he gets all the credit now. He had a bad hand. He did. Yeah. Uh, uh, I see what you did. You know, when you said he died from infections in prison, it makes me wonder if the prison guards were washing their hands while beating him. Oh, he right. died from an infection in an insane asylum, not just a prison. Oh, yeah. So as you're all getting stir crazy being cooped up washing your hands, the very first guy to recommend washing your hands widely also got cooped up for exactly that reason. And with that, let's go into our pandemic update. No touching. <laughs> <laughs> the first study I wanted to talk about is we've really been promoting this six feet of social distance and hand washing. And part of the reason that we're encouraging hand washing is simply the act of washing your hands really helps to get a lot of these virus particles dead. Not just off your hands, but straight out dead. But how long can they stay viable on a surface? How long could you walk by, touch something that somebody else with an infection had touched, and still be at risk for picking up virus? So for that, I'm going to turn to my roundtable of medical professionals. As Wait longer this. than you want. Basically, viruses aren't living things, as in they can't survive on their own. They inherently have to infect cells in order to live. So if they're just left on the surface, they typically don't survive very long. And that's not just for this one, it's for all viruses. Usually no more than a day, I would imagine. Except um, this longer. one. Yeah, they, this one lasts yeah. for longer than, you, than you'd expect. Um, Didn't they recently publish a study that looked at specifically the coronavirus and how long it's infectious and yeah. contagious, and they found it to last on surfaces for several days. I forget, yeah. it was like over three days or something. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. like, um, particularly on stainless steel and plastics, it lasts for quite a long time, up to, um, yeah, 48 to 72 hours even. On cardboard and cotton and things like that, a little bit uh, less long, uh, you know, not, not quite as long, but surprisingly very long on stainless steel surfaces. Yeah, especially on steel surfaces. I was like, huh. All those doorknobs, all those car, you know, those car handles and so on and so forth that are steel and or plastic. I mean. Or on the subway. Or on the subway. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So wash your hands, people. So yes. let me give you some hard numbers for this. SARS-CoV-2, which is the COVID-19 virus, in aerosols, meaning droplets like cough or sneezes, is viable for about three hours. It can still infect. So if somebody sneezes and you're not wearing a mask, it hangs around in the air for up to three hours. Okay. Oh, wow. That's, that's a really long time, too. Cheese and peas. Oh, can yeah. I right now talk about the difference between aerosol and a droplet? Yes, yes. Okay, so well, there was a big hoopla about whether or not this disease, the COVID-19 caused by the SARS-2 virus, is aerosol versus droplet. And the big difference is that in traditionally what we call droplet pest diseases, it, th the droplets are big. So it's if, you're, if they sneeze right on you, then you're at risk for catching it. Hence the idea of staying six feet away, right? Because if you're six feet away, they're not... If the droplets, the big droplets, aren't right sneezed right on your face, um, the idea is that you're safe. Now, aerosolized, that's different. 
those are tiny little droplets that stay suspended in the air an indefinite amount of time, like, for example, over three hours. And there was a big debate about whether or not, hey, is this disease droplet or aerosol? So we don't really still know, but they've done some studies that show that in a space where someone sneezed and there's uh, droplets in the air or little particles in the air, it can stay longer than three hours. They didn't test longer than three hours, but they just set three hours of the cutoff time. It stayed in the air for three hours, uh, assuming that's an enclosed space. So that would suggest that it's even more like likely to be an aerosolized disease like tuberculosis, like um, some of the other ones that you have to wear a N95 mask for. That said, it is thought that droplets are the main, co- uh, the main um, you know, vector for transmission. The main takeaway is please keep your distance six feet away. And that article, though, I think it's important to point out that that article that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine was a simulation and looked at placement of droplets, uh, not aerosolization, on the surfaces that they evaluated. And they looked at how fast the microbe decayed. So just because I don't think it's definitively, I don't think we can necessarily conclude from that the outcome of that study that just because there was presence of virus, was it actually viable or not? Um, I'm not sure that that you can automatically make that conclusion. And so it's a laboratory. Yeah. yeah, And it's a laboratory simulation because there also was something that came out in MMWR this week where there was an evaluation of coronavirus that had been on the Diamond Princess, that cruise ship. And there were reports that they detected presence of the virus, not necessarily viable virus, but uh, up to 17 days. My understanding is that this is presence of virus, not necessarily viable virus. They did do computer modeling and they showed reductions of infectious titers making estimates for what titer was still viable to infect somebody. And you're right, Eleanor, the end results indicate aerosol and fomite transmission, meaning countertops, things like that, droplets that hang around on surfaces, is plausible because the virus can remain viable and infectious for hours. But so far, there are no studies to say, you know, once you've reached a certain half-life of the virus, there's not enough particles to make an effect. The, The key takeaway is that Folks who are wearing scrubs or clothing articles coming back from the hospital, you know, by the time you've journeyed home, most of those virus particles have probably dropped to a low enough titer on cloth. But things such as stainless steel, copper, plastic, things that medical equipment is around where we're touching door handles, elevator buttons, uh, moving about through our environment are a lot more likely to hold on to these viral particles. So this is kind of where we're coming up with, frankly, the six feet of distance is an arbitrary number because we don't know exactly how, but it's studies like this that allow the scientists and the researchers to make those recommendations. So there's still a lot that we are learning about this virus on an almost daily basis. Just to clarify, were these studies done in um, like normal atmospheric pressure or were these negative pressure rooms where they found these these data or positive pressure or other? The studies were done under normal atmospheric pressure. And uh, they extrapolated that. And that's also where we're getting some of these things that say, okay, well, after you have discharged a positive COVID patient, you have to wait about 35 minutes before the cleaning crew, the, the environmental services people can go in the room with their protective gear and clean everything up. So the, the negative pressure rooms do probably decrease that somewhat. Um, But again, this is where we're coming up with some of these numbers that we're telling you. It can stick around for up to, you know, three hours potentially in the air, 72 hours on surfaces, um, six feet of distance. That's where we're creating all these numbers from. That's how you translate the practical, that's how you translate the academic research into practical everyday science. You have to make the assumption there could be something on a surface, which is why A, wash your hands, and B, that's why we buy a lot of Clorox wipes and wipe down surfaces. So and I know something. Each other. There's two studies I really want to touch on while we're here, and then we'll get into a little bit of the actual molecular biology. And I know I'm not normally the science guy, but every now and again, I have to grow up and be responsible. And this is one of those episodes. I apologize to our regular listeners. 
who are hoping for me to just harass Santosh. Please keep um, listening to us. <laughs> so let's talk briefly. One of the big things that's been touted all over and perhaps somewhat inaccurately is the use of a drug called hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine as well as azithromycin as a possible treatment for this. Now, some members of the government administration want to rush to say, this is the treatment, give it to everybody. While Dr. Fauci and others say, well, we don't know, it may be a treatment, let's do clinical trials. Well, some of these trials have already been done. Eleanor, John, you guys are both familiar with some of these studies that were done on chloroquine. So maybe I could could start off. So both of these drugs, chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, um, have been around for a long time and um, <clears throat> have uh, particularly hydroxychloroquine today is used for malaria prophylaxis. Um, it's a derivative of chloroquine, which also was used for malaria uh, treatment in the past, but hydroxychloroquine tends to be a little better tolerated than chloroquine. So that's where why it's more the drug of choice for that. Um, in addition, Hydroxychloroquine is also a mainstay of therapy for certain types of autoimmune diseases, including rheumatoid arthritis and and lupus, for example. So there are people that are actively using these drugs today, not for, you know, off-label indications, if you will. But the kind of enthusiasm that sort of started started up, uh, I don't know, about two weeks ago now, is that there was a preprint of a, a I'm calling it really a case series of patients that were studied in southern France. And this was published ahead of, you know, ahead of time, not peer reviewed in the interest of getting this information out there. It was, it was a pre-publication. And, um, it was, uh, suggested that in patients with severe coronavirus infection who were in the hospital, um, that uh, if you gave them a either hydroxychloroquine alone or a minority of those patients actually received azithromycin, of all things, on top of the hydroxychloroquine. I believe it was just six people. It was six people, absolutely. The majority of the patients that were evaluated in this case series had, had hydroxychloroquine alone, but six had azithromycin added on for a somewhat unclear reason. There seemed to be a traumatic result were were cured from their coronavirus infection. So this kind of created the lay press picked up on this and really started touting that this is a miracle and uh, maybe this is a potential cure. And then, uh, of course, um, I think we're pretty familiar with some of the pronouncements that our president made about the potential for this. My opinion is that certainly we should look at a broad array of potential antiviral therapies, for example, and look at, at potential repurposing of these medications. And a lot of stuff is starting um, with monoclonal antibodies, antivirals, hydroxychloroquine, uh, and other drug remdesivir that you may be hearing in the news. And certainly these should be evaluated, but they really need to be evaluated in controlled clinical trials to ascertain whether they truly do have benefit or not. Kind of echo your point, you know, like we mentioned on the last podcast, what we need is randomized controlled trials because some of these medications really do have side effects and things like that. We don't know if they're going to exert a, a bad effect on some of these patients. And so just randomly giving a medication to everybody who, who potentially asks for it can, can be very deleterious. In rare cases, they can actually cause a very severe arrhythmia that can lead to death. So it's not a benign drug just to give willy-nilly. Already we have seen some pretty pretty bad effects from from this medication being touted without enough without sufficient scientific information. Uh, a gentleman in Arizona died from taking I, I believe it was chloroquine that's that was supposed to be for a, an aquarium tank. Uh, yes, um, that's correct. <laughs> right. Um, you know, so, I mean, isn't that insane? I, People I eat Tide Pods these days, so I, I mean, say, this isn't a far stretch. Anecdot- anecdotally, that's people do that sort of stuff. I, yeah. I took care of a lady who took a medication that I, I I was like, what is this medication? I've never heard of this before. Googled it. It turned out to be a horse medicine for UTIs. <laughs> oh, my. Um, you're right about the side effects. And and also another point too, and there have been several professional societies that have come out strongly advising to not hoard medication because, yeah. I and mean, the thing with, uh, you know, for some of these people who are, who are on Plaquenil or hydroxychloroquine, if they suddenly have to stop this medication because there's none left in the supply to the United States, 
they can have flares of their immune, you know, their autoimmune diseases, and that can lead them to go to the hospitals where which may already be, you know, on the the cusp of overburden with COVID-19 patients and so on and so forth. So it's just a bad idea overall. So the takeaway is that the original recommendation to use these drugs came from a small study that had not yet been peer reviewed, meaning other scientists around the world hadn't had a chance to look at it and see if it was reliable information that we should really expand out as a recommendation. And that does happen on occasion when there's emergencies. So it was a small study that wasn't peer reviewed that showed people seemed to do slightly better. But here's the issue with that. There's a couple things I wanna point out. Azithromycin is an antibacterial, not an antiviral. In broad terms, it seems from that study as if it is being given to help prevent a bacterial superinfection, meaning while the body's already fighting and weakened, bacteria, sneaky little buggers that they are, are trying to sneak in and cause infections on their own. They're trying to uh, basically franchise themselves while America's being attacked by this virus. So azithromycin in and of itself is not doing anything for COVID, at least that we've learned thus far, it's providing extra support. The hydroxychloroquine, similarly, we don't quite know what, if anything, is causing it to succeed. I'm going to talk very, very briefly about the molecular biology and the structure of this virus, and then we'll kind of move on to another potential treatment. Let's talk about how this virus actually works. This family of viruses, coronaviruses, as we've covered in previous episodes, named because they look like they have a little crown around them, includes only six members of this family that infect humans. Four of them, as we covered in our Cold War episode, uh, have been just kind of gently annoying us for more than a century, causing a bunch of common colds along with adenovirus and rhinovirus. The other two members of this family were MERS and SARS, or now SARS Classic, as some virologists have started calling it. Pepsi Classic or something like that? Yeah, yeah. We've got SARS Classic and SARS Extra Crispy. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe, is this is this crystal clear COVID? New SARS. Oh, yeah. New <laughs> SARS. Okay, it's new, it's new SARS and SARS Classic. So the structure of this virus can provide some clues as to why it's been so successful. In, sh- in shape, essentially, it's a spiky ball. Are you bored at home? Take a soccer ball, put a bunch of, you know, golf tees or push pins all around it from the inside out, and that's what the coronavirus looks like. These spikes recognize and stick to a protein that our bodies produce called ACE2, and that's found on the surface of our cells, particularly among our lung cells. That's how one of our anti-hypertension or high blood pressure drugs ACE inhibitor classes work. This is the first step to an infection. A virus has to recognize something on our body and stick to it. And the specific contours of new SARS or COVID spikes allow it to stick far more strongly than classic SARS. So the tighter the bond a virus makes, the less virus you need to start an infection. So there's another feature. Coronavirus spikes have two connected halves like Legos or Tinker Toys. And the spike activates and sticks when those halves are separated, allowing the virus to enter a host cell. In classic SARS, this takes a little bit of effort. But in SARS-CoV-2, the bridge that connects those halves and allows the virus entry can easily be cut by an enzyme in the human body called furin, which is found across multiple tissues. So again, that's why this particular virus, this coronavirus COVID-2, is so much more contagious than the previous one. In general, upper respiratory infections spread more easily, but tend to be milder, while lower respiratory infections are harder to transmit, but are more severe. They tend to cause things like pneumonias. SARS-CoV-2 seems to infect both the upper and lower airways, which is why people the virus can spread between people before symptoms show up. When SARS Classic first made this leap, you had to have a brief period of mutation necessary for it to be able to recognize ACE2 in the human body. But COVID could do that from day one. It had already found its best way of being a human virus. So we're seeing the Pokemon evolved form 
of the first SARS. And it's been remarkably stable given how much transmission we've seen because there's no evolutionary pressure on the virus to transmit better. It's already doing a really great job of spreading around the world. Good for the virus, bad for humanity. But um, positive, a positive point about that, because they haven't seen a lot of change in that virus so far, that may hold promise that if and when vaccines are, are through clinical trials, they may in fact work. Um, Absolutely. Weren't there talks about multiple strains being around though? Yeah, Eleanor, you had mentioned briefly, I think, uh, off off mic, that there are two different strains of one coronavirus, the L strain and the S strain, and one seems to be a little bit more severe. Can you can you elaborate on that? I am not a virologist, but I I know that I had read, and then now this is you know evolving science. I had read maybe a week week and a half ago about um, two strains and that one of them may be slightly more virulent than the other. And I think that there may have been more of a predominance in the U.S. versus overseas. And may, and people were speculating that that may have something to do with ha- the characteristics of the or the clinical course of the infections that we may be seeing. I have not seen anything more about that, uh, you know, since that time. But the latest thing that's been in the news this week has been around this, the fact that there has not been a lot of um, evolution of the virus, or I guess what they call, is it antigenic shift like you get with the seasonal flu virus, which is why you have to, you know, take your best guess and putting the vaccine together on an annual basis and hope that when you start administering the vaccine, that the virus hasn't evolved beyond what was the original recipe for the vaccine. So I, I can't really comment on, you know, how that, you know, has maybe evolved over the, the science has evolved over the past week, other than what I'm hearing is that it seems to be relatively stable or more stable than we may have imagined. So I, I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> um, I, I would just really echo, I haven't heard about the the L strain versus, um, I, I can't remember what you'd call it, the other one. But what I have heard is, is just like you said, Eleanor, it seems that even though there is some, um, you know, some mutation that has been tracked, and, and, and it's one way that we can actually track the spread of the virus, it does seem that there are some very much conserved areas of the virus, particularly, you know, and the spike protein, um, which is kind of, uh, I think, the main antigenic focus of a lot of the vaccines. It seems to be pretty much conserved. And so there's hope that any vaccine that is developed will actually be pretty effective for future seasons, if you will, or or for our future prevention of this virus once once these vaccines are out and approved and so on and so forth, which again, will not is not instantaneous whatsoever. Right now, we have phase one vaccine trials going on, um, including in Washington state, and hopefully phase two will will roll out um, for certain vaccine trials, you know, in the next couple of months, but but no real vaccine that will likely be available to the broad public with before a year, I'm guessing. Now, I want to pull the, the our experts. Do we know, have we come up with a vaccine for the original Coke Classic SARS-1? The original SARS outbreak was was almost a decade ago, right? Yeah, in two thousand three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I believe I believe they did uh, when they interviewed Deborah Burks um, last week on a round of of Sunday talk shows. She had made mention that some of the very quick establishment of vaccines for this for new coronavirus had their basis in work that had been done with old coronavirus. Right. There, there were definitely vaccines that were worked on, but I'm not sure if there were any that were actually approved and tested and so on. I think SARS-1, Coke Classic, just kind of died out. Yes, Yeah. One of the other studies I read also shows, separate from these two strains, which, as John mentioned, are unlikely to impact, at least at this time, vaccine development. And there may be as many as eight different strains of SARS-CoV-2 floating around the world. There's also some of these strains are more likely to have both severe disease, but also a degree of protection depending on your blood type. So for the, I didn't see anything about blood type B, but it seems that based on some of the early studies coming out of China, that folks who have type A blood seem to be getting a slightly more severe course of the disease than folks 
with type O. It does appear to confer a very mild. Now, people with type O are still getting it. They're still getting severe disease, but it appears that people with type O blood are at least a little bit more protected against some of the more severe forms of the virus. So I think the data is pretty modest in terms of the associations with blood type, at least from what what I read. But also, this is not necessarily unique to to coronavirus. Um, that there are other vac- uh, there are other uh, viral infections that may have associations with blood type. For example, norovirus, there is an association with blood type and, and protection, uh, interestingly enough. So this is not necessarily something unique to coronavirus. I'm a U- I have type O, which means I'm a universal donor. So anytime I cut myself and blood spills, I just point to people. I'm like, hey, hey don't throw that out. You can use it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's usually pointing me because I'm the universal acceptor, AB+. <laughs> <laughs> so... Let's pivot very briefly away from our studies for a moment, and I'm going to turn to my fellow frontline physicians, Pros and Ward, anesthesia and ER. What have things looked like in your respective cities? Uh, what are you seeing in terms of severity of disease? Who's coming in with it? How is it progressing? What does the disease look like in real time where you are? To be honest, we haven't really seen it uh, very much. There have just been a few confirmed cases where I live and. Thankfully, they haven't yet been very mild, so I don't really have a lot to say about that. How are intubations uh, going for you, Pros? Because you're you're um, certainly one of the ones you'd be in very high risk of contracting based on your work. Basically, when we talk about things like what you were saying before, that whole aerosol versus droplet thing, um, that really primarily becomes an issue, like you said, as you get closer to a patient, and I mean... Putting a tube in someone's throat is really about as close to um, close to aerosol as you can possibly get. I mean, there are a lot of protocols being developed all over, um, and it's a little bit tricky because all around the country there's shortages of um, protective supplies, as you've heard, and there's a lot of pushes to try to preserve it to as much as possible. So, really, um, at the moment, we're encouraged primarily to use our protective supplies only during that moment where we're putting the tube in and for all other times to just do regular droplet precautions, stay as far as away and remove whatever we don't need as soon as we're ready to remove it. What about you, Ward? What's your experience been like? I have been on vacation for the last (laughs) 10 days. I was supposed to be in Spain. However, at the last minute, I decided to cancel. And the next day, Spain went on to lockdown. And then subsequently, since then, they've had horrific outcomes in Spain. So, however, I have been in contact with our departments and I've been looking at numbers. And right now in San Diego, our census is relatively low. So we're not seeing a ton of cases here in San Diego. We also haven't been testing a ton. So we I, I don't know the actual number of people out there, but definitely we're not Southern California in general, and especially San Diego County is not being hit as hard as some of the other parts of the country. And that's as of now, like late March in 2020. Things can change uh, like that, Anya. Like within a day, things could be different. In New York City, where I did residency, things are very, very different and people are getting sick and they're, they're, they're swamping ICUs and they're running low on ventilators and their critical patients are starting to overwhelm the uh, system based on what I'm reading in New York Times uh, and other articles and um, are from from personal communications. I, I'm hearing that things are getting a little tough, quite tough out there. So um, shout out to all my New York folks. Stay safe. So, yeah, I'm in Louisiana, where I'm from, things are getting overwhelmed very quickly. So just so you know, to get an idea of how sick people get. So according to, this is data out of China, but it sounds like it's adding up it, the, to what people are seeing in Italy and what people are seeing in New York. Of the people who are sick enough to be admitted, a lot of them in China, 76% of them went on to needing oral tracheal intubation, needing to be put on a respirator. That's a lot of people. <laughs> and out of all these people who are in the ICU, who need an intubation, who needed, um, mechanical ventilation, I think it was like 86% of the people died. I've, I've got a few more updated numbers there. Um, I'm part of the COVID task force at my hospital. So I am right. seeing those folks every day and I had to shave my beard. Oh, 
Yeah, my I no, didn't it's have you can't wear the mask. Yeah, I didn't have one of the approved styles of beard. So so I'm part of I did not have a regulation approved beard to wear the masks. But here is what we've been seeing. Now we haven't been hit too hard yet at my current hospital. But here is what we're seeing in terms of the data, and it does track with a very similar to what we were seeing or to what they were seeing in China. Of people who do get the disease, about half of them start becoming hypoxic by around a week in. So when you first start showing symptoms, one of the earliest ones is shortness of breath, and you'll see decreased, that'll be reflected clinically in decreased oxygen saturation. Of those 50% who get hypoxemia, about 20% of them will go on to develop acute respiratory distress syndrome. So ARDS or terrible pulmonary edema and difficulty breathing. Um, And then they'll have to go into the ICU where of that 20%, half of them will be managed with ventilators that are non-invasive. So masks and BiPAP and about a little... Under half will be managed with mechanical ventilation or intubation. And then the remaining 8 to 10% is managed with either just high flow O2, like the nasal masks or the facial masks or ECMO. So just to really clarify that, Josh, um, so some of the devices that um, you've mentioned have been discouraged in this specific scenario just because they're not what they call secure devices. Um, right. And the concern being that they could leak um, particles around an increased number of aerosols. Right. So they're not recommending using BiPAP because that could definitely get leaky. However, yes. in places where your choice is, you know, you're all out of ventilators because you're terribly overwhelmed, then about half of those people have been able to survive on BiPAP just because it's that or nothing. So we're talking about a real crisis. So for us, we haven't, we've been able to keep everyone who needs it just on a ventilator yet, but you're right, Prozin, that they are not currently recommending non-invasive ventilation. I've Uh, even read recently about um, ventilators that could be kind of split to... So that's another crisis thing in Proz. You can probably comment on this, but that means the two people who are sharing that ventilator need to be breathing at roughly the same pace and have the same requirements. Because if one dips and you compensate for them, it's going to affect the other. Essentially, um, I mean, again, this isn't something I've seen myself. It's just something I've sort of heard about through the whispers. Um, essentially what they do is they take different sets of tubings, uh, try to isolate them as best as they can, which isn't much, and they essentially double the volumes that's being delivered so it can go, so you can have a normal volume going each side. You know, the biggest concern is cross-contamination if one person develops another infection and gets spread it all into that one. But um, it's sort of like, it's not a great answer, but it's also in a situation where there really aren't any good answers for it. The course that we're seeing and the patients I have currently hospitalized, I've got two major issues to deal with for the most part. One is even the folks who are getting tested are sitting around the hospital for anywhere from six to seven to 10 days while we wait for the results of the test. I have a lot of people on the floor who probably do not have COVID, but it takes about eight or 10 days for a test to result. And that's not because the test takes long. It's that our local lab only has a very limited amount of reagent to result the test. So we can take, we can do all the tests we want, or we can't because we're still limited in tests as well. But even if we could do all the tests we want, the ability to interpret and run those tests is limited by the lab. And as they are sharing amongst multiple hospitals, we've only been given permission to get essentially six resulted tests a day. I can only discharge at most six people home with known test results. Uh, So that's one issue in seeing the hospitals starting to back up. Um, And these may be, so there's some people I've had to send home and just say, look, you're not having oxygen requirements. You're not having fevers. You can self-isolate even if you have COVID and be safe. And that's one of the problems. The other is the people who are short of breath, who are hypoxemic. I have no treatments to give them. I can, you know, they are on Plaquenil or Kaletra or some of these other medications, and that doesn't do anything about their 
increased oxygen requirements. I don't have a white count I can track to see if that's getting better. I can give symptomatic Tylenol, but I'm basically just waiting it out, giving supportive care, and there's no way to know a definitive endpoint saying, yep, you haven't had a fever for two days, you're safe to go home. They may not have a fever for two or three days, and it may come back up. So a lot of this is still kind of on the ground, and there's a lot of watchful waiting going on on the wards. So. Yeah, and they've shown that with at least the data out of China that um, some of the some of the treatments might be heroic and futile. I mean, ECMO. Everyone on ECMO died. ECMO is cardiopulmonary bypass. Yeah, which when you don't have lungs and heart functioning, uh, they put you on ECMO, and they they all died. So it's it's it might not be as helpful as uh, one might think. Randomized controlled trial for Kalitra um, out of China, which has shown that you know at least when it was given to severe patients, that it really had no effect whatsoever. You know, maybe we need to look at this in uh, different populations or whatever. But fortunately, we've ha- we we have some information to say that it's not necessarily the end all be all treatment that it initially was thought to be. Now, there is an interesting looking treatment that I'm going to ask you about in just a moment, Eleanor, but I will briefly explain why I'm seeing some of this decompensation. Even though I'm giving mostly supportive care, let's go back into our molecular biology books. And we talked a little bit earlier about how the COVID virus attaches to the ACE protein in the body, which is prevalent a lot in the lungs. So once in the body and the virus attacks those cells, the cells that have that die. That's what a virus does. It kills living cells. Those dying cells kind of slough away, fall off, and they fill your airways with junk. That's what causes some of that difficulty breathing. It carries the virus deeper into the body in that case, down toward the lungs. This may be how we get an upper and lower respiratory infection. And then all those dead cells and fluid start clogging the lungs, making breathing even more difficult. And in some cases where I'm seeing the immune system going berserk, That's due to the vessels of the lungs and the body getting leaky from inflammation and infection, which initially could be good because it allows your immune system to get better access to you. But if they get too leaky, your immune system goes berserk, overreacts, and you get something called a cytokine storm. And that was responsible for a lot of deaths, both during the 1918 flu pandemic, during the H5N1 bird flu outbreaks, and even 2003 SARS these cytokine storms where the immune system overreacts. And that's my guess is that's probably behind the most severe cases that we're seeing now. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's where some of the um, IL-6 monoclonal antibodies are coming in like remdesivir to try to counteract this cytokine storm. So that a lot of the drug trials that are going on now, not vaccine, but the drug trials are uh, look, really focusing on the most severe patients. There are some prophylaxis types of studies going on with separate issue, but most of the, most of the meds, the antivirals, the monoclonal antibodies are targeting the most severe patients because that's where the high unmet medical need is right now. Um, that have the highest risk of, of dying. Eleanor, you happen to find an interesting study in your own research that indicated they're starting to do tests with the plasma or the blood samples, essentially, from people who have recovered from COVID. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this is interesting. Again, early days, not proven. There are some trials that are beginning to be set up here in the United States looking at uh, administration of convalescent plasma. So what does this mean? The assumption right now is that someone who survives and recovers from coronavirus um, will be immune to it. Now, we don't know definitively when you are immune to bacterial infection, a virus, you have antibodies circulating against Mm -hmm. that particular microbe. So if you got reinfected, presumably those antibodies would wake up and attack the virus or bacteria and prevent you from getting another infection. There is some precedence for look at using plasma to treat patients that are very sick. So you basically harvest plasma from someone who has those antibodies 
for coronavirus and then administering it. There is some preliminary data coming out of China. This was published this week in JAMA. Uh, it was only, I think, five patients, so a very small number of subjects with severe infection that were administered, I think, one dose of this plasma, and they did have significant improvements. There is precedent for this. I believe that um, in the past, there was convalescent syrup serum used um, for um, old SARS, actually, and for MERS, and also um, for Ebola virus. I remember distinctly that there was, a, was it a nurse that came down with it, survived? And plasma was used in, in a number of patients, and there was even yeah. a trial. Yeah. This is not without precedent. And uh, when I started reading about this, I got kind of excited because it the other area of interest I have is in cholesterol metabolism and the use of acute phase serum uh, as a blood product has actually been used by the Swiss Red Cross in the past to treat sepsis, believe it or not. It may have something to do with having high HDL fractions in that serum. They give to these uh, patients to essentially mop up endotoxin to treat their condition. So I've even been seeing that, um, you know, like say calls for, for people who have had coronavirus and have gotten better to donate blood and things like that. So hopefully, you know, hopefully it could be a, a potential treatment. Yeah, so Sean, you said you've been on a bunch of conference calls about this all day, every day. Uh, every what information day. can you share? From the NIH standpoint that um, all hands are on deck. We are trying to approach this, you know, this virus from multiple different standpoints. Um, at least as far as I'm uh, where I'm concerned is that I've been involved in just a clinical trial testing a, an antiviral, which you mentioned, remdesivir across different sites across the U.S. and also internationally. Um, like I had said a couple of weeks ago, I came back from Korea to, to help set that trial up. And we are, um, you know, enrolling really fast. And so hopefully we'll have some information about remdesivir to, you know, whether or not it actually works. And we also have the way that this controlled trial works is that we can plug in different treatments. And so we're actually looking at a number of different medications I know that hydroxychloroquine is being looked at in some other different trials, so I'm not sure if we're going to study that ourselves. But we're also looking at tocilizumab or at least um, or, or something similar to that, which is an IL-6 blocker to see if reducing uh, certain markers of inflammation, inflammatory cytokines can potentially help with that, that uh, treatment and a number of other different medications. So there's a lot of different medications that we're looking at right now that haven't necessarily been developed specifically for uh, coronavirus, but but have been used for other different kinds of viruses and RNA viruses and things like that, as well as monoclonal antibodies that are, I think that I think are in the works as well. So even though this seems like a, an insurmountable kind of pandemic, we have a lot of things that are in the works for potential treatments. And I think that also we've learned from other you know epidemics that have gone on in the past, including in you know our Ebola recent Ebola epidemics and things like that, is that good science can be done, even in the most difficult of circumstances. You know, even in war-torn Democratic Republic of Congo, we can find legitimate answers to some of these questions to know whether or not some of these medications can actually work against any particular infectious disease. So that's pretty much everything we know so far about COVID, but because I always would rather end on a happier note, I'm going to ask you all something that has nothing to do with viruses, but I learned on the internet this week. Are you familiar with how Triscuits got their name? What's a Triscuit? <laughs> okay, so no. No doesn't know. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't know how Triscuits got their name. However, Nabisco is kind of like the national biscuit company. So I wonder if Triscuit is something similar. So it, like I'm saying, I wonder if the C-U-I-T at the, at the end has something to do with biscuit. And I'm not sure what tri-I, the, the tri, the tris, T-R-I-S, what that stands for. But maybe it's like three different kinds of wheat in a biscuit. Uh, is that what it is? Well, you're right that the second half is biscuit, but it's not made from three different kinds of wheat, and nor right. is it nor is it tri-cornered. It's a square cracker. So I know one of you, because Eleanor digs around in the same Wikipedia pages and Twitter feeds that I do, and 
we both got to learn delightfully that when they were first created as a company, Triscuits were biscuits made with the power of the factory at Niagara Falls, which was in the early days, one of the only early sources of electricity, hydroelectric generators. Uh, so the long story short is we all learned that Triscuits is short for electricity biscuit because that's how they were baked. And I will never call it anything else again. What? Absolutely. That's nice. Great. I love good trivia like that. Thank you. So e Eleanor, what were your feelings on learning of the electricity biscuit? I was particularly excited about, about the old ad from 1902 that had little uh, little uh, lightning bolts um, all pointing towards the biscuit. I think there are still a few Triscuits left at the supermarket that has not been hoarded. <laughs> it is one of the few things I can still get. I might try that today. So that's it for this week. Thank you to all of our crew and former co-hosts for coming back on in during this time. Remember, Josh, no touching. No touching, no touching, just virtually reaching out. Even Neil Diamond sang, hands washing hands. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that will be in the show notes, along with links to any papers we used in researching this show. A big heaping thank you to all of my co-hosts, without who, which I could not produce this show or even make it reach the folks that it does. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. No, no lollipop. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.